You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. I'm Kyle Worley, and today I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're going to ask the question, is God three or one? The answer, yes. And now I know that we've given you the answer, so don't tune out just yet, because we really believe that as Christians contemplate, meditate, and consider the doctrine of the Trinity, what they will find is that it will compel them to deeper worship and deeper mission. We believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is the source. It's the starting point for every other aspect of understanding the Christian story that we've been pulled into. And we believe that when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity as it's revealed in Scripture and it's as it's been stated throughout the history of the church, that this doctrine is actually fuel for Christian mission. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, guys. So in my experience, when people start reflecting on the Trinity, um, they can get a little bit fearful. Oh my goodness. Have I been thinking about God incorrectly all along? Can I ever speak about God in a meaningful, truthful way? What do you do when that happens? Well, I feel like just getting to spend time around people who know stuff about the Trinity has made me hyper aware of how little I know about the Trinity. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it's a good thing I like you, JT, because like really, too, I mean, I was, it was a joke among our staff for the first couple months that JT was here that we were all afraid to pray in front of him because <laughs> we were realizing we'd been doing it wrong for our entire lives. It's grace. And so, you know, you feel like, oh man, I'm a failure as a Christian. This is a basic doctrine and I don't get it. And um, one of the things that I'm excited about this podcast for is I'm hoping maybe we can make that a little more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that maybe even before we start talking about Trinitarianism in particular, but just kind of what, what is doctrine and theology doing in the church anyway, uh, is it's definitely not something that's just for the elite. It's not something for the people who've done a lot of study. It's for every single Christian. And so anytime we're making doctrine feel inaccessible or far or distant, we're doing the people that we're trying to teach a disservice. We're we should actually be inviting them into the conversation and saying everybody's allowed to participate here because what we're trying to do here is, is think and speak rightly about God as you're, as he has revealed himself in his word. And so as we enter this conversation, man, I think the first thing we want to acknowledge is this is a conversation that should be for everybody. There's definitely going to be people who feel like this is a bit over their heads, but we want to invite them into participating in conversations like this. Right. And so if you were... Uh what would you say to somebody who's going to start listening to this podcast episode and about 10 minutes from now, they're going to go, oh my goodness, this is a lot bigger than I ever thought. And I really, really need to start thinking through the Trinity. What would you say? Like, okay, here's the next step. I want to put this on the front end of our discussion because I don't want somebody to get halfway through this and go, oh my goodness, I like have a crisis of faith kind of moment. Sure. So if somebody starts thinking, I have never thought about God and the three persons of the Trinity in this way. What would you tell them, JT? Yeah, I think the first thing I would ask them to do is just um, as they begin to read their Bible, just start paying attention to the words that are used specifically for Father, for Son, and for Spirit. Because what Trinitarianism is not trying to do is say anything in addition to what the Bible has said about who God is. We're just trying to kind of pattern our thoughts and our words and our understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And so start paying attention specifically to the persons of the Godhead as they're revealed in Scripture. One of the things that we do in the Bible class is we have them annotate a copy of the text. And particularly with our study of Matthew this fall, we're having them mark everywhere they see mention of Jesus or one of his titles. And they mark any mention of the Spirit a certain way and any mention of the Father. And that's one of our hopes that we'll be raising sort of their awareness of what the text is communicating that they maybe weren't seeing before. Yeah. So 
all three of us in here have been teaching uh, doctrine and Bible and the life of the church. And uh, some of us for two or three years, some of us for longer than a little longer than two or three years. Uh, And so when we're teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, what do you find are some of the biggest obstacles to people understanding the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the intimidation factor is high. I mean, I think as soon as they realize the complexity of the issue, it's kind of like you were saying, Kyle, they're kind of like, I'm just going to back away really slowly Mm -hmm. from that and hum whatever him I know that's going (laughs) to keep it straight in my head. And I mean, that's unfortunate because I think that there probably every doctrine that we encounter, the closer we get to it, the more we would understand its complexity and, and might have that same sensation. And so um, the Trinity just doesn't wait to, to, to make you feel that way, I guess. Mm. But we need to do our, you know, we, we've got to love God with our minds. Uh, it, we're never going to be able to fully reconcile our understanding of the Trinity uh, because we're limited humans. But but God has disclosed himself to us in this way. And so we have a, a joyful duty to learn as much as we can and understand as much as we can. Yeah, I think that's right. And maybe just one additional thought there is, <clears throat> I don't want to overstate the case here. You guys push back on me if you think this is an overstatement. But often in Trinitarianism, when we kind of get off off the road a little bit into the weeds, uh, is when we are trying to be overly rationalistic with mm-hmm. it. We're, this is the Trinity is something that's apprehended and confessed and believed and sung about by faith. And so when we try to to over, um, I guess I'm not sure if rationalize is the right word, but maybe over define past what the church, what the Bible does and what the church has done. Yeah, Yeah. package it. That's when we really get into, into some problems. Right. Like, like analogies of the Trinity where people are like, okay, look, let me make this real simple for you. Have you seen the little fidget spinner? Okay. The Trinity is like a fidget spinner and you're like, whoa, (laughs) like, uh, I've never thought of that before. The Trinity is super annoying. I don't understand. Or a a three leaf clover or an egg or water. Wait a minute. Um, It's not. (laughs) And so you start, you start seeing all these things and you're like, oh no, what we're doing is we're making the trinity simpler and you're going no actually you're really making it far more confusing that's exactly right right and so when we're thinking about a proper understanding of the trinity i think we probably just need to go what is the simplest way that we could define trinity yeah maybe i'll, I'll jump in i mean the simplest way we could define the trinity is to say we believe in one god who's three persons each of whom are fully god let me let me maybe make it a bit more complex than that. Here's, as I try to define Trinitarianism in the environments that I'm teaching, this is the definition that I use. It might feel big and, and, and clunky, but I think each part, each part is fairly important. When we say that we're Trinitarians, here's what we're saying that we believe about God. We think that God eternally exists as one God in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom, each one of those persons is fully God, yet we only believe in one God. That is Trinitarianism. I oh, realize for somebody listening to this, it could be like, oh my gosh, I didn't get to write all that down. It could right. feel could still feel fairly inaccessible, but each part of that definition, I think is fairly important. And how did we, okay, let's, well, let's break it apart. Let's do it. Uh, as opposed to just going, assuming that we are all on the same page with it, because it's, it's huge. It's great. It's a mountain. Massive. Right? Yeah. So let's start. God eternally exists as one God. The first instinct of Trinitarianism is monotheism. We're, we're, we're saying that there's one God that exists. He's the creator God of the universe who spoke all things into existence. He acts with a unity of power and will and action. Uh, Trinitarianism's first instinct is one God. And if we were going to jump into scripture somewhere to say, listen, this is where we see scripture clearly state that mm-hmm. God is one. Where would we go for that? I mean, clearly you've got the, the Ten Commandments lead off with there, you shall have no other gods before me. And the, the whole point there is because there are no other gods. There right. is only one God. The whole message to the nation of Israel coming out of 
uh, polytheistic Egypt is you are a monotheistic group and you're heading into a land that's polytheistic. Right. And so, uh, I mean, it dominates the landscape of the Old Testament. Yeah. Right. I think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, yeah. right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right. Now, JT, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And Jen, jump in here too. I, I know sometimes when we think about uh, the the way that the Old Testament, Old Testament stresses the oneness of God, mm. we hear one and immediately think singular. Right. Is that what's kind of present in the Old Testament conception of one God? Jen, jump in. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> even in Genesis 1, you have mention of the Spirit. Right. Uh, John 1, 1 ties uh, Jesus Christ to that creative act as well. And so... No, I think that if you're paying attention in the Old Testament, you can find that the theme is there all the way through. Right. Yeah, there, there's a there's a oneness, but still, as you look in the Old Testament, as you begin so as you begin to see what the Bible is describing God's activity as in the New, you can look back at the Old and start seeing some clarity of perhaps oneness, but still plurality right. among the Godhead that might not have been been present the first time you read the Old Testament when you're thinking about the oneness of God. But as 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 God's revelation progressed over the centuries, uh, and as Jesus Christ comes as the incarnate Son of God, and as He sends the Spirit, we begin to able to be look look back and say, this is always who God was. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so moving forward in our definition, mm-hmm. so we that's the oneness aspect yep. of it. What's the next step? Three distinct persons. And so once we've said that God is one and he's eternally one, he's eternally one God, there's also three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons though is fully God. It's not like the one's 33.33% God or, right. or one's more God than the other God. They would be God distinct and of themselves. Lord to be worshiped, praised, God, fully God. So God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, fully God. And what, okay, let me play, let me just play devil's advocate here. Yep. When you first hear that, you go, wait a minute, wait a second. This seems like sleight of hand (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you know, you just think about basic math and you're going, um, okay, so there's, there's one God Mm -hmm. and in this one God, there are three distinct persons. Right. So there's three in one. Exactly. Don't you get it? Okay, so we're done. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for tuning in. All right, that's it. We've, we figured this whole thing out. Right. Well, where would we go in Scripture that, um, that could demonstrate some of, the, some of that mystery on display? Where yeah. do we see yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the distinctiveness of the persons of the Trinity mm-hmm. on display in the, in, in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, and let me just maybe even emphasize this, the, the wrestle or the struggle that you're having right now. This is the wrestle and the struggle of the early church, believing in the oneness of God, but then beginning to incorporate the Son and the Spirit mm-hmm. into this divine life and their understanding of, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this the Son must be God also. The Spirit must be God also. So, Because early Jewish believers that, yeah. were, that were being converted to Christianity would have certainly had some tension, right? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, they had had it drummed into them. The oneness God of God. God is one. Yeah. God is one. Yahweh is one. Yeah. And then all of a sudden— the Son of God shows up, they believe upon Him, yep. and the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells them, and they've got to be rethinking this. That's exactly right. And I think one of the greatest cases for the deity, specifically of Christ, that we have isn't just His claims to divinity, though they're certainly there, but that the Jewish people begin worshiping Him. Like, this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. You only worship and fall down before God, and they're doing this to to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they begin thinking through, how is this this God one, but yet three? And how can we pull these things uh, apart and then put them back together? So I think one of the first places I would go, I love taking people to John chapter 15, 16, and 17. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer where he begins kind of offering an account for, for I think, who God is as he, as he thinks about, okay, I'm, I'm going to ascend to the Father. And along with the Father, I'll be sending the Spirit. Well, the only person who can ascend to the Father the way that Jesus does is who? 
God. God, right? The only person who can send the Holy Spirit is God. God. And what does the Holy Spirit accomplish for us? Well, he applies the salvation that Christ has accomplished. So the Bible is attesting clearly to the works of God are accomplished by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Thus, they must all be God. You know, I love um, t- taking people to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 mm. to demonstrate the work of the three persons in salvation, the yes. unity of that work, but also the distinctiveness of how the Father adopts, right? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then there's this emphasis of that in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Mm-hmm. So there's this, the Father adopts. We're united to the Son. And then when you get to 11 through 14, it says that in Him, uh, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we see the Father adopting. We see the unity uh, that the believer experiences by faith in the Son. We see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we see the three persons of the Trinity at work, right? And and you begin to see their distinctness too. So some of the language I've used there too is the Father is the one who initiates all things. The Son is the one who accomplishes all things, and the Spirit is the one who applies all things. That's really good. So they're, 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 it's important to emphasize their distinct work in the economy of salvation. It's That's been cool. a really helpful distinction for the people in the Bible classes, I think. It's just a really good starting point and gives you a little bit of confidence to start looking at the text with, with different eyes. Um, I, I like First Peter, the opening of 1 Peter, mm-hmm. where he says to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, and then he says, um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So there again, you get the economic Trinity, like in this little brief segment. So, you know, you can tell that this, these early believers had a strong sense of this concept, but yeah, it had to have been a major point to be convincing their listeners of. Yeah, absolutely. And this is so rich. Jen, you just introduced the distinction that it would be helpful. I think for us to tease out, you said economic Trinity. Mm -hmm. So, um, what is the economic Trinity and is it different from another angle of looking at the Trinity? Yeah, well, let's jump in. So uh, this is just to maybe all cards on the table. This is one of the more challenging aspects of Trinitarianism and Trinitarian thought, the relationship between the economic and the other term is imminent Trinity and the relationship between those two things. So there's no access that we have uh, to God's life in himself. That's what we mean by imminent, except through the lens of what he accomplishes in history, the economy or the economic Trinity. And so we're making the case that there is a very, very close relationship. And by very close, I mean the same relationship between how God reveals himself in real time, like in history, like he reveals himself in Christ. Which would be the the economic aspect. Which would be the economic Mm -hmm. into who he has always been from eternity. So remember part of our definition, God eternally exists. Mm -hmm. And so we're saying that God the Father was always God the Father. God the Son was always God the Son. God the Spirit was always God the Spirit. We see that in history but that's who he always was. There was never a time when the son wasn't the son. There's never a time when the spirit wasn't the Lord, the spirit worthy of worship and praise. So that last part of the definition of the Trinity, if we've gone one God, three persons, each of whom is fully God. So does that mean that like the spirit kind of reports to the son and the son kind of reports to the father, so the father's really in charge and the son's kind of like, you know, his lieutenant and then the spirit's kind of like just a, you know, I don't know pawn in this yeah. game. I mean, like, I don't think that's what it means. Who works for him? Is that what you're saying? Right, right. So just trying to get to the idea of, I think when we hear about these differences in role, all of a sudden we can go, okay, so I kind of get it here. There's kind of a hierarchy here. Yeah. Yeah. So I would want to stay away if I could from the terminology of hierarchy. 
Um, but I would definitely want to use the word order. There's an orderedness to the Trinity that's based upon who the person is. And so there's not some kind of like, you know, descending level of authority between God. Why? Because each person is God, but yet they are acting in accordance with who they are. So the son acts as son, the spirit acts as spirit, and the father acts as father. So one of the things I've noticed in my travels around, I guess, evangelicalism, if we still can use that term, is just that barely different <laughs> different Wait, corners different corners of the church have their favorite members of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I'd just be curious to hear how, uh, at JTU in particular, but also Kyle, if you have some thoughts on this, how, how is that a, a particularly dangerous thing to slip into? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the ways that it's dangerous is that if we can begin to fixate on a person of the Trinity, what we can end up doing is missing out on the unity right. of the will and work of God. That the Trinity is not divided against itself. It's not, um, you can sometimes see this in a negative light when somebody's like, yeah, God the Father is the angry one. God the Son is the real merciful, compassionate one. And God the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to kind of comfort you and, you know, tell the Son and the Father what's going on. And we we can begin to kind of parse out these persons of the Trinity where it's like, well, if you need this, you want to go to this person of the Mm -hmm. Trinity. If you need this, you want to go to this other person of the Trinity. But the reality is, is that there is nothing that the, uh, Jesus himself says, I do nothing except that which I see the Father do. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Spirit is coming as what? As the helper to point people to the Son and the Father. Mm-hmm. They are unified in their actions. So yeah, I think that there can be a real danger in going uh, and kind of dicing up the persons of the Trinity into these kind of atomistic groups, these very particular selective groups. This is what you do with the Spirit. If you need comfort, go to the Spirit. If you need grace, you go to the Son. And if you need correction, you go to the Father. Mm-hmm. No, it's no, they're always yeah. doing all of yeah, those yeah, things yeah. together. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit over the last few weeks too, is what I'm actually preparing to teach on on uh, the Trinity tonight in the training program that we have here at the Village. <clears throat> and uh, I'm still not quite sure how to parse this out. So maybe we can just talk about this together real quick. But one of the things that I think is beautiful about the Trinity is you very rarely have a specific person of the Trinity pointing to themselves for their work, right? So you have the Father saying uh, or, or sending the Son, right? He is the one who says, if you want to know what I'm like, behold, the image of God, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Colossians speaks about this. Hebrews chapter one speaks about this. And and what does Jesus do? Well, he points two directions. He says, I do nothing except that which I see my Father doing. If you want to know me better, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you the Spirit so that you can you can be Christ-centered and you can, you know, remember all that I've said to you. And he will, uh, he will remind you of all that I've said. And then the Spirit comes and what does the Spirit do? never once points to himself. Mm -hmm. He always says, uh, he always points to the son or authors scripture, which is about the son. And then what does the son do? Points us back to the father. So there's this, in this orderedness, there's kind of this dynamic kind of organic unity of God and each person of the Godhead pointing to the work of another. Which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think about, um, there's this great quote from Julian of Norwich, and she says this. She says, The Trinity filled my heart full of heartfelt joy, and I knew that all eternity was like this for those who attain heaven. For the Trinity is God and God the Trinity. The Trinity is our maker and keeper, our eternal love, joy, and bliss all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I think when most people hear, hey, there's about to be a talk on the Trinity, or there's a podcast on the Trinity, what they don't think is, I'm about to be full of heartfelt joy. Right. So how does the Trinity, or in reflection, meditation, consideration, understanding of God's triune nature, how does that compel joy? Why would it compel joy? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I, 
here for the first thing I want to say is I kind of understand that instinct. I remember walking into my first Trinitarianism class and it was terrified because you're kind of wondering, is this practical? Is this going to be applicable? How does this apply to me being? Wait, did cr- you know in, when you went into that class that this you wanted this to be your thing? I had no idea. I went into my first theology classes having no Bible or theology background at I all. I was I trying to get JT. through just to be a preacher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, man, it's a long story. So the thing, the thing that I would, oh man. I think the thing I would say around Trinitarianism is it's the foundation of the Christian life. There is no such thing uh, as a Christianity that isn't founded upon uh, the act and work of the triune God. Uh, The Christian life is living unto the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. There simply is no other Christianity. And that since we believe uh, that the Westminster Catechism says, uh, and we believe, not, not, not just that it says this, but we, we believe that it's true, that we are the ones who get to enjoy God. When we think about enjoying and delighting in God, we're talking about this God. Yeah. In other words, Trinitarianism isn't an attribute of God. It is God. Mm-hmm. It, when we, it's almost like I, I say this to our students. When we use the terminology God, we should be able to substitute, unless we're talking about a specific person, Trinity. I love Trinity and Trinity loves me. And so it's the foundation of absolutely everything we believe, including our joy and delight. Yeah. So when we speak of a longing for heaven and people talk about how I just can't wait to get there and see Jesus, Mm. is that problematic or no? Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to oh. see Jesus, but I think what Jesus <laughs> is going to be doing is pointing to his father. Yeah, you know, right. what, what yeah. the father's doing is going to be pointing to the son. Look what he's done when the, the son's going to be doing. Look what the spirit has accomplished. And so, and there's nothing wrong with saying the father has revealed right. himself sure, sure. in Jesus. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, Jesus is quite clear throughout his ministry that he is depicting the father. I mean, mm-hmm. he prays in the high priestly prayer. Jesus, I want them to have unity with you as I, uh, or father, I want them to have unity with you as I share unity with you. So really one of the great hopes that Christ has for his followers and what we're pulled into by union to Jesus Christ is a rich communion with the father and the spirit. I think you're touching on one of the most practical aspects of understanding the Trinity better that hit me 
when I first started thinking about it. Something I just, when I saw it, I could not believe I had missed it for so many years. But that idea of communion and mm. of unity, and you put those two words together and you get mm. community, community, right? And, you know, there's no more popular word in churches today than to talk about community. Uh, and I think what we can sometimes forget is that the reason that's a beautiful thing is because it has existed from all time yeah. in the Trinity, right? And so one of the things that that helped me with was to move away from a very inward focused idea about why God created, why God saved, because I had grown up in churches that tended toward teaching things like, well, there was a little gen shaped hole in God's heart and he needed to fill, you know, he was lonely or he was bored or he was, and, and, and these things are all dismissed when we realize that there's always been perfect communal love and fellowship among the members of the Trinity so that free, that's a that's that's a joyful thing to recognize because at first you think oh I want God to want want me that way and then you realize oh that would crush me right, right. so it, it frees you up to not um, have to be God's better half right we, we could never bear the burden of being the desire of God's heart His right. desire would be too <laughs> too big too great too grand right over oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and so but we can and we do receive from the overflowing delight mm-hmm. that God has in Himself. This is one of the books we require in the training program is Delighting in the Trinity by Mike Reeves. And I think one of the, the buy, most- Buy that book. Yes, get buy that, the book. get the book, get the book, get the book. But one of the key points of Reeves's book in Delighting in the Trinity, particularly when he talks about the, the doctrine of creation, is that we do not have the world that we live in, uh, our imaging of God, what it means to be human, is impossible to fathom apart from the Trinitarian work in creation. That mm-hmm. the capacity to love that we have and the desire to be loved is a reflection of a God who loves and is loved in and of himself in the fellowship of the three persons. And I think that's such a key part to that book. And you're right, such a compelling aspect of meditation on the Trinity. I want us to kind of maybe land the plane here with thinking through, and we've, talk, we've touched on this briefly, on the notion of worship. But I'd like to spend just a moment thinking about mission. Okay, how does seeing God's triune nature provoke us to deeper mission? Is this just something that we contemplate and it terminates on us? How does the Trinity compel mission? How should it factor into us thinking about going and being sent? Yeah, so in Trinitarian language, historically, the the terms that have been used uh, to describe the work of the Son and the Spirit is either processions or missions. Just for the sake of the podcast, we'll probably just use the term missions, that in in history, God sent his son on a mission to ransom a church for himself. Uh, as Jesus has accomplished this on the cross, resurrected from the, from the dead, and ascends to the right hand of the Father, his very first act is to do what? To send the Spirit on a mission in order to apply his salvation that he has accomplished to the church. And so I think one of the things we think about is we are image bearers of God. We look to the sent nature of the Son and the Spirit and say, we too now, those who are made in the image of Christ, who are his church, because we're enjoyed by the Holy Spirit, we too are sent Amen. to proclaim yeah. this gospel, mm-hmm. the Trinitarian gospel that God has sent his Son and the, and the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit in order to apply and accomplish salvation on our behalf. So Rich, I think about John 17, 18, right? Again, high priestly prayer. As Jesus saying, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's exactly right. There is no Christian mission apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. That's right. Because there is no good news apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. That's right. If God wasn't ascending God, and if that wasn't integral to who he is and what he has done, there would be no gospel. There would be no good news, and there would be no Christian mission. Mm-hmm. There'd be no reason to go. 
I'm a little sad this is a podcast right now because I wish you could see the expressions on the faces of Kyle and JT. It's so, <laughs> so <happy>. much fun. <laughs> it's, but when you talk about this, because I think there can be some times where as Christians, we don't feel the freedom to explore these topics because we feel like it would be just intellectually selfish mm. right. for us to spend time contemplating and meditating on the Trinity. There's this sense of we, we got to be real sad about it and like, well, you know, I need to go, you know, I need to go do this for, you know, and learn the Trinity so that I can kind of have the Trinity down and then be clear on what I believe. But really consistent contemplation and meditation on these realities is what compels worship, obedience, and mission. That's right. The depth of our doxology and our mission will be contingent on the depth of our doctrine. Amen. Well, guys, one last thing here. What's one resource that you would recommend for further study on the doctrine of the Trinity? I think we've already mentioned one. Yeah, but I'm not taking that one. You get you you. I think you mentioned that one. Okay, so "Delighting in the Trinity" by Mike Greaves. <laughs> See, I get I get more I get more recommendations, and and I'm going to give you two. Oh, thank I, you. Yeah, I just just want to give you two. You're gracious. So if, if I was, and they're going to be at two different levels. Great. I that's, think there's, I think, I think it's awesome. important for people, perhaps different readers or people, uh, not readers, people listening in. I think the first I would say is, and maybe the best thing ever written on the Trinity, although there's certainly some complicated parts, is Augustine's work on the Trinity. If you're just wanting to kind of go all the way in, like to the depths of Trinitarian theology, Augustine's work, De Trinitate, or On the Trinity, is is that work. You've just got to do that. And let me just then take it really, really simple. I think it'd be great to read Nicaea or Chalcedon. These are some early church creeds that you could have read in about 35 seconds. I mean, they were just talking super simple that give a beautiful picture of Trinitarian theology. Okay, and and I want to get a, kind of go a different direction here with this last resource. I know it's a song that JT and I appreciate a lot when we're meditating on the Trinity, but Sandra McCracken has a great song it's called Trinity Song. Just beautiful. And it is gorgeous. And so if you're looking for, I'm about to turn this podcast off, but I want to think about the Trinity a little bit more. Spotify, don't do not do this while you're driving. Yeah. <laughs> if you're driving, pull over. Spotify, Trinity Song, download it from iTunes. It's a beautiful song and really provokes meditation on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's beautiful. Yes, that's where I'm going to go to right now to listen to that song. Thanks for listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we will be talking with Dr. Greg Allison about Catholics and Protestants, whether we're one big messy family or two things altogether different. See you next time. Grace and peace.